0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the
1: website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Sarah Wegmiller and I'm a research assistant for the Center of Environmental Law and Policy at Yale. I'm in the studio today for part one of a two-part podcast with Sarah Krakoff, professor of law at the University of Colorado School of Law. Professor Krakoff teaches and writes in the areas of American Indian law, natural resources and public land law, environmental ethics and climate change. She co-authored one of the leading casebooks in the field of American Indian law, and her article examining the effects of federal law on the Navajo Nation's exercise of sovereignty, a narrative of sovereignty illuminating the paradox of the domestic dependent nation, has been cited in several federal district court opinions. Professor Krakoff, thank you for joining us today. Um,
0: Uh, You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
1: Your forthcoming book, Parenting the Planet, uses parenting as a frame to explore our relationship to nature in a way that does not depend predominantly on individual rational self-interest to explain human motivation. How did you decide on parenting as a metaphor?
0: I decided on parenting um, because I was trying to think of the right analogy for our situation on the planet in light of climate change predominantly, but not just climate change. Um, but we can start with climate change, <laughs> which uh, is, of course, the effects of our um, greenhouse gas emissions um, since the Industrial Revolution, which has resulted in uh, elevation of the Earth's surface temperatures. And um, this, I guess the signature feature of climate change for my purposes was that we have influenced the fate of the planet from the depths of the oceans to the height of the atmosphere. So kind of the starting point was, there is no nature apart from us, not a point original to me, um, but one that seems, you know, well embraced by the scientific and ecological community. Um, And so then what does that mean in terms of our obligations? And so there are a couple of features of this that I was sort of struggling with to figure out the right way to think about our obligations. Um, and one of them is it has a sort of tragic aspect to it, and that's that no matter what we do now, we're never going to get back to some pristine state. Um, and on one hand, that's not new. Um, there, there, as long as we've been around, there sort of wasn't a pristine state. It was always a state with us in it. So in some ways, it's just a recognition of that situation. On the other hand, it's clearly changed in terms of its intensity. Uh, so there is no nature outside of us, and no matter what we do from here on out, um, it, it's a product of that uh, that blueprint, essentially. Um, and even if we do the very best we can, and here's sort of referring to the serious collective action features of trying to address climate change, we won't know whether we, in the long run, will have made a difference in our lifetimes and our generations. So there's sort of that tragic aspect that seemed to me to call for a, a kind of grown-up metaphor, like, okay, but if we're going to do something about it, um, if we're going to take action anyway, if we're going to sort of act on ideas about um, virtue in a sense, like what's the right thing to do notwithstanding whether we know in the end whether we're going to make any difference, we need you know, to think of ourselves as a species at a certain developmental stage. Um, and so parenting seemed the most uh, relevant one to me because it too calls for sort of setting aside your own needs and thinking about the needs of others. Um, accepting that you're not going to know the end of the story uh, and yet sort of doing the right thing because of the satisfactions that it involves, um, not necessarily because they're outcome-based. That said, I will say that at the moment I'm less enchanted with the title than I used to be, but I haven't found a better one. (laughs)
1: Um, It's a very interesting topic, and I think the idea of parenting and not necessarily being able to see the outcomes of this structure or discipline that you've put into place, I think that that's a really great analogy, at least initially, even if the title changes um, to to this theory of, of developing it for the environment. Some time ago, Hillary Clinton and Rick Santorum authored dueling books, respectively, titled It Takes a Village and It Takes a Family. Um, though they're not about environmental issues, both books use the frame of parenting and childhood for some degree of policy analysis, how, if at all, does your framework for environmental stewardship fit into this broader political debate?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I um. Well, I guess so. So one one common thread uh, is this idea of collective responsibility uh, that we all have to act together as a collective, whether that's as a community or as a state or at the national level to make a difference. And that's certainly true in the context of climate change. So in fact, it was an obstacle early on to um, any kind of international coordination, this idea of the global collective action problem, like, well, if China's not doing anything, then even if we do something, it won't matter. Um, And while on one hand, that was an excuse, like there's always a reason to be the leader, um, especially if Which at the time we were when the United States made those kinds of statements, we were the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. You could say, well, that gives us an obligation to lead, and then others will follow, and that will help solve the collective action problem. Um, So in some sense, it was a poor excuse. On the other hand, there was some truth to it. um, And that just it helps it that describes the sort of very deep nature of this kind of um, commons problem or collective action problem. So I think there's a similar thread, right? If the idea is uh, that we have to think of ourselves Uh, If we want to make any headway um, as a collective enterprise and instead of just each of us going off and doing our own thing in our individual or even group self-interest, then – and I know that that was sort of a theme certainly in Clinton's book. I I have to say I didn't read (laughs) Santorum's book, so I'm not as sure how strong – uh, the commonalities would be with respect to that work, but if the title is any indication, I guess there is at least that sense of like, look, it has to be about more than just me,
1: right, right, and and future generations, and um, yeah, parenting, stewardship. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how have you seen this this new idea of having having this stewardship and and collective responsibility? How does this reshape the conversation for environmentalists and If humanity can recognize the power and influence that we wield over the planet, how does that recognition change our obligations and responsibilities?
0: Well, I guess uh, if it reshapes the conversation, (laughs) um, it could do so in a couple of ways. I know that one um, uh, way of thinking about natural resources and, say, wilderness management is— we should just is that we should just step out of the way and let nature take its course, kind of view. Like humanity is the problem, and if we would just stop being the problem, then uh, nature will will heal itself. And I, um, I guess I think that's just misunderstanding our situation. The, the choice to manage or not to manage is still uh, the a choice that will perpetuate our influence one way or the other. And at this point. Um, even the most seemingly um, remote, you know, natural areas have been influenced by our choices and our actions. And so that's just like a, uh, to me, that's sort of a non-starter at this point, even though I think it stands for an understandable impulse, which is maybe one choice to manage should be to manage by letting be. And I think Mm -hmm. that could be completely legitimate and the right decision in some circumstances but it shouldn't be the conversation ender. Um, it, it's just one of many possible strategies. So that's one way that the conversation could change, is just to, by helping us recognize our situation. Um, but, which makes me think of this is another reason I chose the parenting metaphor is you know the idea of stage is like when you're a parent, you're in a different situation than when you're a child. And that's part of what I you know, want us just to think about. We're facing different kinds of conflicts because of where we are now. So anyway, that's one possible um, response that could grow out of this recognition. Um, Another is, I guess, to maybe help us see more clearly what I think has always been true, which is how we interact with the non-human world has always been a reflection of our values with respect to the human world, too. Um, And the way that, I mean, on one hand, nature is a thing apart from us. Um, On the other hand, it also is an idea about how we want uh, to relate to the world that is outside of our own consciousness. And um, and so maybe it'll just help us talk more clearly about, you know, why we value um, places that are less touched by us than others, um, whether it's scientific, ecological, or health values, uh, why it's also very important to cultivate places that um, are you know, more sort of urban <laughs> garden areas, you know, maybe we could sort of unite the whole discussion around different kinds of environmentalisms um, without having this nature versus not nature dialogue separate us.
1: That's, that's a really interesting point. Um, I, I think that it's really important to recognize how humans do place different values on different pieces of nature, whether it's land or the ocean or a certain um, species or something, a plant maybe. Um and I guess on that note of valuation, um you draw on Eric Ever Eric Erickson's stages of human psychological development to frame out our relationship with the natural world and it's one that progresses in stages. Um can you give us a brief overview of these stages and how they evolve and where we are now?
0: Sure. And uh this so this is this is in a way relating to an aspect of the title I don't like as much oh. anymore, but I'll still I'll give it a shot. So what I don't like is I did get the idea from um, human psychological developmental stages, which I found useful for the reasons I've already described briefly. It, it sets out that you have different conflicts at different stages, so different stages require different virtues. Uh, and I just thought, this is exactly what we need, like to just see where we are clearly. Um, and initially, I also just saw the way we were related with the non-human world in kind of a developmental stage, like progressive, uh, chart kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just decided in a way that was too confining and I got too locked into it and that I would try to cram (laughs) all of our history with the non-human world into this elaborate Ericksonian chart that, um, you know, so the metaphor would overtake the actual project. So that was the risk. But I can nonetheless give you a couple of examples of the way I was thinking about it that I think still hold as long as um, it's understood we don't see them as uh, chronologically progressive. I think they're more stages in the sense that they represent different moments in different times and places of the way we think about our relationship with the non-human world. So um, we might think of the childhood stage, um, where you know the the key features of childhood are sort of uh, the capacity for wonder, but also um, the capacity for fear uh, and uh, desire for Mastery and um, the and and also you know the fear of not being able to master your circumstances right. Those are, that's a quick way of describing what it's like to be a kid right. Uh, and we can think of sort of the European arrivals to North America as having that kind being in that stage of their relationship with nature right. So there was this intense fear of this vast so-called wild <laughs> continent, which is which is actually of course populated by. Many, many people, um, but that was the myth and the understanding, and so they they wanted to master it and conquer it, and so that uh, their 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 primary virtues so they thought were mastery sort of overcoming control of nature, so that was one way I thought about that stage and um, then another example is adolescence uh, Some of the key features of adolescence are. Uh, the, the beginnings of the ability to displace the self, um, but not necessarily to complete, complete that process. Um, the falling in love, you know, that's that's a feature of adolescence. Uh, and so, I currently have a chapter in the book that is sort of a way of exploring the adolescent stage, which I think of as the the boom in outdoor recreation and sort of wilderness exploration and mountaineering in particular. So that's a way of relating to the world that I think is very in some respects adolescent, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, it just reflects that stage. like people fall in love with the outdoors and they want to go uh, sort of become one with it and and at the same time master it. I mean, there's a lot of egotism still in adolescence, and that stage is about mastering those conflicts. Um, and there are a lot of important things that humanity gets from that stage that mountaineering, outdoor exploration, recreation stage. Uh, but it's not up to the task to manage what's facing the non-human world in our world today. So those are just a couple of examples.
1: And the adult stage is, is kind of just drawing on beyond those two. Yeah, yeah, right. So then,
0: I mean, that's where then sort of parenting would emerge. Like the central right. r- virtues of parenting are the ability to displace the self, you know, to set aside uh, sort of hedonistic desires and think about the longer term in the next generation and um, to uh, resolve conflicts in a way that are you know, more other-regarding. Um,
1: so so what exactly does this mean for environmental law? How does the field and practitioners Need to adapt to best address the climate change and other global environmental challenges that that we face
0: well, so one I think one uh example and many 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 people are recognizing this and have already done so, so again, like a lot of things, this is not original to me, but is that the era of the big environmental statutes, which was hugely important, so our mm-hmm. moment of po- pollution control legislation most of which was passed in its current form in the late 60s and early 70s, um, was, you know, about, like, solving a particular technological problem for the most part. I mean, and, of course, regulatory challenges in terms of implementing technological fixes. But I think the big idea was we'll pass a law, we'll implement a bunch of technological fixes and do enforcement, and voila, the problem will be solved. And that's just not um, how we're going to tackle, if we ever do, uh, climate change. Because everything about our contemporary economy is fossil fuel based, right? We live in a carbon based economy. So, uh, And this is, of course, what has made the challenge so incredibly daunting, both to recognize, like we don't want to recognize that everything we do, everything we use every single day is implicated in this global environmental challenge. so, there's a recognition problem, which has taken us a long time to address, and we're still addressing it, right? Part of why there's so much denial. One, and two, there's a solution problem. Like, you know, uh, scrubbers are just not gonna address uh, global emissions. And um, so, technological and regulatory fixes just can't be the answer. And it has to be sort of a, an economy wide, culture wide approach to changing what our energy sources are how we distribute them, um, et cetera. And that's just, of course, on the emissions side. And so, again, getting back to the metaphor, I think this is part of what I was thinking about. Like, we just can't, we're not even just the, like, adult stage where we fix things. (laughs) We're in the parenting stage. Like, we're in this for the long haul. It affects everything we do. um, And we have to figure out a way to see that it's worth it, right, that this makes for a better and more meaningful way of approaching life and not just a depressing and worse one.
1: Right, right. Um, I guess along the lines of of environmental laws, um, you've also written that contemporary environmental laws have done tremendous good, but have also done little to curb the extreme inequities of the distribution of environmental burdens and benefits. Um, and how might a new understanding of our relationship to the natural world help curb these inequities? Ah,
0: uh, that's, that's a good question. So I guess shifting gears a little bit... A little, yeah. um, So and your question, I think, has sort of two parts. (laughs) Um, So conventional environmental regulation um, has done a tremendous amount to make our rivers closer to fishable and swimmable, and our air more breathable and so forth. Um, But like all laws that are passed in a society, they will tend, of course, to perpetuate inequities. So it's not that it's unique to environmental, the environmental regulatory system. um, But at the same time, the environmental regulatory system is not unique in that it has responded any differently. Um, And so environmental benefits tend to accrue to those with more power and wealth and access to decision making in society. And environmental burdens tend to fall hardest on communities that are already burdened by multiple uh, the multiple Inequities of various forms of subordination. So, if you're poor, it's going to be harder to move away from where factories are sited, and factories are going to be more likely to be sited there. So, this is all just basic literature and information from the environmental justice movement. Um, and, you know, consciousness about those issues within mainstream environmental, the mainstream environmental regulatory state, have been raised for the last couple decades. And I think some progress has been made, but it's hard to unseat the basic notion that, um, you know, if we just tinker with our laws a little bit, like everything, you know, we'll clean up the environment and everybody will be fine. I mean, inevitably, the hardest burdens always tend to fall on the least empowered communities. Uh, And I think then to lead maybe to the second part of your question, a, a harder, an effect of all this, it's even harder to see are the ways in which conventional environmental regulation and conventional environmental protection um, may also run roughshod over some communities that have themselves uh, what we would think of as a land ethic, um, but that uh, don't have the power and resources and means to make themselves visible um, in the context of mainstream environmental protection. So that's one side of it, and that we see a lot in the context of American Indian tribes um, and which have, in some instances, been used as sort of natural resources fonts for um, fueling big cities like Arizona and uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and, and Los Angeles, California, right? So we've taken coal from the Navajo Nation. We've built power plants around the Navajo Nation. Uh, none of the electricity generated at those plants goes to the people of the Navajo Nation, but all the pollution costs and all the environmental externalities are borne um, by the residents of the Navajo Nation. And the Navajo tribe, like many tribes, has itself a pretty deep ecological ethic. So I could go on about that, but there are obviously lots of ironies there, and that's just one example of you know how we sometimes don't see that uh, just doing things according to business as usual sort of erases what is, in fact, um, an ecological ethic or a stewardship ethic that exists in a community that just hasn't had the power to make itself visible in that way.
1: That's very interesting. Um, Professor Krakow, it has been a pleasure to, work, to speak with you today, and thank you so much for your time.
0: You're welcome. Thank you.